Turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading today in James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. Know this, my, brother, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. For the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so today we're looking at James 1, 19 through 27, and the title of the sermon is True Religion. It has nothing to do with the Denim Jean Company. But we're looking at the theme of true religion, which is a little bit of the theme of the entire book. Um, so last time uh, I preached through this was back in November, and we looked at the very first part of chapter one, which was the testing of your faith. Uh, so the book of James is divided up into sort of three main sections, and chapter one sort of serves as the introduction for it. And uh, the three themes really are the testing of your faith, pure speech, and obedience. And every following chapter, two through five, uh, basically fall into one of those categories. So chapter one is sort of a, an overview, an introduction. So the first time we, we looked at this, we looked at the first part, right, the testing of your faith, and now we're going to look at the second two themes, pure speech and obedience. So the, the theme for today is a true believer has pure speech. They put their faith into action, and they keep themselves unstained from worldliness. And I've divided this into three parts here. So number one, true believers have pure speech. Number two, true believers put faith into action. They don't just hear, they do. Number three, true religion is undefiled and generous. So I want to very quickly look back forward, uh, look back at verse 18 in chapter one, though. So we're looking at 19 through 27 today, hearing and doing the word. But in the last sermon, um, when we looked through this, the first 18 verses, we looked at the main theme of testing your faith, standing firm in tests and trials. And we saw James encourage the church by reminding them that those trials and tests are designed uh, to strengthen your faith and that God promises the crown of life for those who remain steadfast. So in, in verse 18, it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in many ways, verse 18 kind of serves like a, as a proof text, as the why uh, for why the Christians ought to behave in a certain way. It's because you've been brought forth by the word of truth and that there is a, uh, there's a keeping that the Lord is doing. He's preserving you until the end. So the main theme of the book 
right, is true faith is practically lived out. It's kept unstained from the world. And in this sermon today, I want us to try and understand the text, not only so that we know it. I think it's important that we understand what God's Word is saying, right? We understand the ins and outs of it. But I do want to offer a challenge and an encouragement this morning. James, in this section, is offering very clear examples of evidences of true faith or true religion that ought to be present in the lives of all Christians. So what we're going to cover today are examples of evidences of faith that ought to be present in the lives if you are a believer. So what I want us to consider as we hear the word this morning is, does my life actually bear this fruit out? Does my life actually contain this evidence? And if so, am I actually encouraged by it? Like in a long-term sense, am I actually encouraged and strengthened from the fruit of obedience that I see? So let's get into the text here. So starting with pure speech in verse 19. So point number one here, true believers have pure speech. The main point here in these three verses, 19 through 21, is that true believers are supposed to be quick to listen, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and we know that anger does not result in godliness. We're instead supposed to accept or take hold of, uh, receive the word that God has implanted in us, and we're supposed to do something with it. That's the next section, point number two in your outline. But this first section here on pure speech Um, This is something that James is addressing in the church, and pure speech is often linked to godliness, and hasty speech is linked to uh, anger in Jewish traditional literature, Um, and then it's also, we see this in Proverbs quite a bit, Um, but I also think that James is seeing this in the local church there. Remember, he's writing to churches, uh, Jewish Christians who had been scattered out among the nations after Christ ascended. So we're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I do think James is talking about hearing in general here. Um, There's some, you know, interpretations that say, well, maybe he's talking about hearing the Word of God, because we see that in the next verse, right? Be hearers of the Word. But I don't think that makes very, uh, it just doesn't really make coarse sense. It doesn't make natural sense, because the Greek grammar there would have to be consistent, and the next verb would have to be, you'd have to be quick to hear the Word of God, but then you'd have to be slow to speak it. It doesn't quite make sense, and it doesn't have anything to do with anger. So I think a natural interpretation is more aligned with how James is writing here. Um, This is the same kind of language we see in Proverbs, too, when we talk about wisdom and speech and restraining our words. Uh, There's that famous passage in Proverbs 17, right? Maybe we've used this with our kids. Uh, Even the fool is thought wise if he remains quiet. And the one right before it, right, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, whoever has understanding is even-tempered. So I think the natural interpretation here of verse 19 is is the best one. We're supposed to be quick to hear, uh, slow to speak when we're talking with one another. This is about pure speech as we converse with one another. That leads us to verse 20, right? So the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So that's the why. We're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger of man, human anger, doesn't produce the righteousness of God. A little bit more exegesis here, I think, is in place, or it's appropriate. So the word, of, uh, the word righteousness here, a lot of times when we see that in the New Testament, it is referring to uh, salvation. So uh, the Lord uh, justifying us through Christ, right, bringing us into right relationship with himself. But James is not talking about that kind of righteousness. The kind of righteousness he's talking about is more like the Old Testament righteousness, uh, obedience to God and his word and his will. 
Uh, it's the same kind of righteousness that Jesus referenced in Matthew 5 when he tells them that your righteousness, right, if you want to have salvation, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and that of the teachers of the law. So talking about obedience to God's word and will. So just to sum it up here, hasty speech without listening is, often leads to flared tempers and anger, and that sort of behavior does not produce obedience to God. It doesn't result in the kind of righteousness that we're called to in His Word. So, in the very next verse, we're going to see the follow-up action. Receive the implanted Word. And this time it is referring to the Word of God, right? Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. So the therefore here, I do want to back up just a little bit. So it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. But the therefore, I think, is actually better connected to verse 18. What's the therefore, right? What's, what's the why? What's the proof text for that? I think actually verse 18 makes a little bit more sense, right? Where it says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind of a, a first fruits of God's creature. So if you've been given the new birth, you should put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. If you've been given the, the new birth, if you've been brought forth by the word of truth, then receive the implanted word, the word of truth by which God brought us forth, which is able to save your souls. This is really in full accordance with early church doctrine of new birth and the lifestyle change that follows. It's a common theme that we see here. It's, it's pretty obvious, right? Put away the wickedness, put on the righteousness. There's sort of that um, Old Testament, New Testament language of putting off and then putting on, taking off and putting on, like clothes that describe the spiritual transformation of what's really happening in our lives. Uh, we're being made new. Interestingly, though, I, James doesn't actually continue with that metaphor. So when he talks about putting away uh, filthiness and rampant wickedness, right, he doesn't say then put on righteousness. He actually doesn't even say to put on God's word. He says to receive the implanted word with meekness. Meekness means humility. Um, meek here should not be conflated with the word weak. Meekness does not mean weakness. It means humility. It means rightly understanding God's authority over your life and submitting to it. So consider Moses, right? Moses was a meek man, but he was not a weak man. He wasn't perfect, right? But he did stand up to God's people when they sinned. He did intercede on their behalf. He did obey the Lord. So receive the word with meekness. And in regards to receiving the word, I think that this is getting at a very basic concept that I want to dwell on for just a minute. So the believer has God's word implanted in them, and they're to receive it. The original Greek word could also mean uh, welcome or accept or take hold of. And so I think that James is hitting on a very basic tenet of the new birth, of salvation. Um, and I, I do think the language is important here. It's the same kind of language, like the receiving. Um, it's the same kind that Jeremiah uses when he talks about the new covenant prophecy. Remember, he says that uh, the Lord says through Jeremiah, I will write my law on your hearts. So receiving the implanted word here could also mean, uh, like another way of, of thinking about it is that um, accept the word that's been written on your heart. It's, it's different from the general revelation. I think it's 
uh, accept the, the Word of God written on your hearts when you become a Christian. And just to continue on in, in a bit of a word study here, um, the original Greek word for save is in the future tense, right? So we can think about receiving the implanted word as, as the word of God being written on our hearts. And the save is actually in the future tense. And I do believe James here is referring to the final day of salvation, like uh, saved in, a, in an eternal sense, when our faith is turned to sight and we're with the Lord forever. So that's the the, the word that is able to save your souls. And that might sound like a literary quibble, but I promise it's not. I don't say that just to give us a, a thorough education that you'll never use again, but I want to return to that idea later uh, because I, I think it's kind of encouraging. Actually, I think it's quite encouraging um, that we can look at these evidences of faith, look at the promise for it, and be encouraged that this is evidence of true faith, of true religion. It's evidence that the Lord is keeping us and will continue to keep us. So back to the text. We're instructed uh, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then we're instructed to put off our wickedness and receive the implanted word with humility because it and only it has the power to see us through to the end. And I think this is significant for one more reason, and then we'll move on to the next verse. We basically arrived at the doctrine of the depravity of man. Um, the Word of God being, receiving the Word of God is just that, it's receiving it. Um, having God write His Word on your heart is something that He has to do to you. It has to be done on our behalf. We confess this all the time in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, and it's worth repeating, I think. We're, we're not saying that we can actually achieve this. We cannot implant the Word of God on our own hearts. We cannot go and, and write His law there. We can't do this. It has to be done to it, to us. This has to be done external to us. Um, and I think this is really contradictory to what we see in an unbelieving world. Uh, postmodern thought is really about the ideology that your problems are external and your solution is internal. All this bad stuff that happens to you is outside of you. That's really the reason for all of your problems. And if you'll just focus inwardly enough, if you will... Um, get alignment with yourself, if you'll become at peace with yourself or the universe or whatever, then you, can, you, you too can have peace and you can uh, sort of become one with everything and you can achieve enlightenment. <laughs> so, but that can't be true. We know it's not true. For verse 21 to be true here, for the word of God that's been written on our hearts to save our souls, for that to be true, that means it has to come outside of us. The problem with us is internal. We have sinful hearts. We confessed it earlier, right? We've been sinful from birth. We're rotten to the core. We have no hope of saving ourselves. The salvation is external. It had to come down and reach us out of darkness. We can't do this to ourselves. So I think these verses are, are really hitting on core doctrines of the faith, which makes sense. James is writing to early Christians, right, who are trying to reconcile their Jewish traditional upbringing with now this new revelation of Christ, right, trying to figure out how does the New Testament, how does the Word of Christ and His teachings supplement and fulfill the Old Testament. So, the command here is for believers to allow the Word to influence all aspects of our lives, and let's unpack that a little bit more. Right, so we have specific instructions on how to guard our speech as believers, and we have the reason why we've been brought forth by the word of truth. 
That affects the way that we talk with one another. We're supposed to put away old sin patterns that we might have clung to and instead cling to the word that's been written on our hearts that'll keep us until the very end. Another way of phrasing this could be say we should hold fast to our confession of faith. So now we're going to come to the second paragraph, hearing and doing the word, or number two in your outline. So this is one of the main themes that James unpacks later in chapter two. So point number two, true believers put faith into action. The main idea here is that someone who hears and forgets God's word is being neglectful of God's word. James will later argue that their faith might actually be dead if, there's no, um, if they, they don't actually put their faith into action with obedience and good works. But for the one who receives the implanted word, they onboard it, they internalize it, they listen to it, they remember it, they put it into practice, they will be blessed. This is the normal pattern of the Christian life. And James here is reminding the church, maybe they totally lost the plot, maybe they slid into complacency, but whatever the case, the message is still the same. Don't just hear do. Practice what you preach. Exercise the muscle you've been given. Or like we saw um, last week in the sermon on 2 Timothy, fan the gift into flames. So let's get into verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So that's what we're supposed to do with the implanted word from verse 21. We're supposed to do the word. Don't just hear it, right? Put it into action. Don't merely hear, do. And we're not saying that we should act without listening, but we should listen and then act, right? Mere attentiveness is not enough. Um, faithful hearing of God's word requires action. And if we don't do this, James writes, we're deceiving ourselves. Um, we saw the same word for deceive in chapter 4 of Colossians when Tom was pe- preaching through that, and we saw that there was a false teacher in the church who was deceiving with fine-sounding arguments. And I actually think that's kind of a helpful analogy here because a false teacher, right, is deceiving people by telling them things that are not true or at least things that are only partially true. But they're, they're lying. They're telling, saying things that aren't true. And so just like that's true of the false teacher, um, the person who claims to have faith, true religion, but they don't act it out is actually in the process of deceiving themselves, that person might be giving themselves false assurances. Hey, I, I heard the word of God. Yeah, I, I, was, I was paying attention. I went to that VBS. I do have my fire insurance. I heard it. I got it. I'm good. But he doesn't actually ever see the need to obey. I'm not talking about you disobeyed once. You're not a Christian. That's legalism. I'm talking about someone who says, yeah, I have faith. I've, I've heard the gospel. Never puts it into practice. Doesn't see the need to never feels the urge to. That person's lying to themselves. This is really clear. That person is lying to themselves. They're deceiving themselves. They actually have no reason to have assurance of their faith. Their religion is worthless. These are harsh words, but I do think there's there's an encouraging section to this. We're going to get to that in a minute, but let's let's keep on going through the verses here, verses 23 to 25. Let's see the rest of James's point. So 23 to 25 says, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I think the, again, just some some word study here, I think the most 
natural and straightforward interpretation of the word look here. Um, doesn't have anything to do with the verbs that are used because they are different. It doesn't really have to do with um, what they're looking at or how they're looking at. There are some scholarly arguments that kind of go one way or the other. I, I think the more natural interpretation here again is correct. It seems to be the way that James writes and I tend to agree with the more conservative commentators on this stuff. Um, we try to do some extra reading into this and complicating it. I, I think you end up getting a little off base. The point here is that what are you doing with the information? Um, not so much like how are you looking, does it have anything to do with looking intently? Is it, is the law of liberty different from the Old Testament? I think that's uh, getting a little bit too in the weeds. What do you do with the information? The person who looks, who hears, and they, they don't actually remember, it's like somebody looking in a mirror and forgetting their own face. Did you really look? Did you really remember anything? Well, we'll find out if you actually uh, obey what you just heard. That's what James is saying here. The more natural interpretation, I think, is, is the right one. It's about what are we doing with this information? When we hear the Word of God, do we immediately forget and move on to something else? Do we save it for another day, maybe when it seems more relevant? Eh, one doesn't seem as relevant to me. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. I better just save it for a rainy day. Or do we internalize it, and then do we put it into action? The expectation here is that we are hearing God's Word and then obeying it. God's Word is not passive. It does require action. And I think that if we neglect this, we see in verse 26 that we are deceiving ourselves and our faith is worthless. But on the encouraging side, there is a promise of blessing. This, uh, so we saw this back in chapter 1, verse 12. And I'd like us to go back and look at that really quickly. So if you could turn into James 1.12. There's this promise of blessing, and it first comes up in, in 1.12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a promise of blessing, the crown of life for the one who remains steadfast under trials. In other words, he doesn't abandon his faith. He perseveres, he believes all the more. That man, what we're being told here is that he'll be preserved until the end and given the crown of life. That's the eternal reward. And because James is talking about blessing in the future tense here, I actually think that's the way we should apply it to verse 21 and verse 25. So verse 21 says that the implanted word is able to save your souls, and the future tense in the original Greek would imply that we're not really talking about the gift of faith at conversion, but it's, it's the eternal promise of salvation um, that gives us assurance, right? It's not a promise, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an eschatological promise, it's an eternal promise. And it's the same in verse 25, where, yes, one way to interpret it is that uh, the one who hears and does the word will be blessed in all of his doing, like the Lord will bless his work and, and show his kindness and mercy to him. And I do think that's true. But I also think what's true about it is that it means that he'll be preserved until the end, right? It's an eternal promise that gives us assurance. The promise is not that if we obey enough, we might get into heaven, right? As long as the good outweighs the bad. No, that's not the promise. The promise is that hearing and doing the word, obedience, is evidence of the gift of faith, true religion that results in us being sure that we will dwell with God forever. It assures us that our souls are saved forever. I think passages like this one, even though people love to use them to say, yeah, you Christians are so legalistic. Gosh, look at all this stuff you have to do to be saved. 
And if you don't do it, it says you're not saved? What the heck? I, I think that these passages are here as God's kindness to us so that we can know what to train our eyes and our hearts for so that we can be encouraged and assured of the faith that we do have, the gift of God, the Word of God that's been written on our hearts. We'll cover more on that later, but let's finish up here and get to verses 26 and 27. So point number three, true religion is undefiled and generous, the last two verses. The main idea here is that true religion manifests itself in obedience to God's word. In many ways, the last two verses here are sort of like a summary, like a final, final summary um, for the rest of the letter. So James makes the three points here again, control your speech, have concern for the helpless of the poor, which could be categorized under obedience and also generosity, and then avoid worldliness, keep yourself unstained from the world. So in verses 19 through 20, right, the implication is that hasty speech leads to anger, doesn't produce the righteousness of God. But here, James actually takes it up a notch and says that this person has a worthless religion, right? Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So that's the first thing that he reiterates here on pure speech. The language of a bridle, uh, James uses again, right? It refers to what uh, the rider uses to keep the horse under submission, right? It brings the animal uh, under control of the rider so he can steer it in the right direction. And the person who can't control his tongue, who doesn't bridle it, has a worthless religion. And I think what's being said here is not that the person has a worthless, uh, doesn't have no religion. They have one. It's just worthless. The word... um, Worthless here can also mean vain or futile, and we've seen it several times, uh, like in Acts 14 when the the Jews are calling uh, Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, and they're trying to sacrifice to them as the new gods, and Paul says, stop, what you're doing is futile, it's vain, it's worthless, put it away. Um, the, The word there in the New Testament is usually linked to idolatry, sort of like in a Romans 1 sense, those who, uh, acknowledge God, they know he exists, but they refuse to honor him or give thanks, right? They have a futile thinking. So uh, one way to understand this, right, the person who can't control his tongue as a worthless religion, it's not that they have no religion, it's more like their, their faith is no better than idolatry, right? Your religion, if you're denying all these things and you, you can't show the fruit, you're deceiving yourself. It's, it's sort of like having an idolatrous religion. These are sobering words, I think. I mean, worshiping a false god will always deceive you. It can't do anything but deceive. But if someone is claiming to be religious, right, and they're not showing the fruit of their faith in their speech, then they are deceiving themselves. Probably not deceiving anyone else, but they're definitely deceiving themselves. So what's true religion? Well, let's get to verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in this final chapter, uh, James offers this, in this final verse of the chapter, James offers the summary that true religion is to help the helpless and keep yourself unstained from the world. I don't think, uh, right, we can't overgeneralize it. James isn't saying that these are the only two things to true religion. This is the only two, two points that have to be true uh, for you to have true faith, but rather that true faith must always contain these two things. Right? So it's not just these two things, but it always has to include these two things. The first commandment, 
to visit the orphans and the widows and their afflictions is very specific. And it's actually referring to being generous and caring for the helpless. And we see him um, pick this up in chapter 2 when he talks about the sin of partiality. And you may wonder, I actually wondered when I looked into this, why does he say, um, of all the things that he could exhort us to, why does he say visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction? Um, I think the word here is, the wording here is, is really, really specific. So he says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. The same language is echoed back in Exodus and Deuteronomy and then Isaiah, where God is described as a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow. And then Israel echoes that language, uh, Isaiah echoes that language when he's talking to Israel, saying, you need to imitate the father, right, and to, uh, to do justice, care for the widow and the orphan and the fatherless. So I think that it's telling us what kind of father we serve, one who is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widow. We know that the Old Testament told Israel to pay close attention, to actually go out of your way to help. And so this sort of example of obedience, of faith here being acted out, is aligned with the kind of father that we worship. We're supposed to imitate him to act the way that he does. Um, and that's why I actually titled this section, right, it's Undefiled and Generous, uh, Lord willing, if I preach again, we'll go through this in James 2 on the sin of partiality, and it's very, very closely to tied to generosity. So even though that word doesn't actually appear here, I, I used it very intentionally because if we go through this again, we'll see that as James unpacks this even more, part of obedient faith is generosity. So for the second command in, in verse 27 here, keep yourself unstained from the world. The world clearly is the unbelieving world, right? The culture of unbelief that dominates the world, and that's still true today. Uh, I think that the word unstained here is, I think we can get a little bit of mileage out of that when we think about it, because it, it implies the opposite, right? So if, if you need to keep your faith unstained from the world, then the implication is that if you are near the world, if you immerse yourself in the world, then you will be stained by it. And I think that's 100% true. Um, I don't think that's a reach at all. Sin contaminates. If you immerse yourself in filthiness, in rampant wickedness, you will not come out the other side clean. Um, we're having some renovations on our house right now. This is an easy example, but if you've ever had water damage in your house, you know that when they go to repair the drywall, they don't actually cut it at the, the water line. They actually go about 48 inches up, and that's because if you leave it untreated, that's how far the moisture will penetrate. If you don't take that preventative measure over time, the water will go from that initial wet spot 48 inches up. So it's, it's preventative measure. And I think that's, that's kind of the helpful way of understanding, like, if you immerse yourself in sinful culture, then it will stain you. And part of pure religion is that true faith is to keep your faith unstained from the world. Do not immerse yourself in sinful behavior, in ungodliness. I think it's wise to view the world as having that kind of effect. So we're not walking in rampant wickedness or filthiness like verse 21 describes, but we put those things away and we focus on the Word of God, which has saving power. We're careful to do what it says. We're not just listening with our ears, but we're actually putting it into action. So if you've been reconciled to God through Christ's death and His resurrection, then your call is to act out what you see in Scripture. 
Keep a careful watch on your behavior and your speech so that you're not being contaminated by the world, by ungodliness. But if this passage finds you sort of in an in-between spot where you haven't really decided if you're actually going to commit to what you see in Scripture, maybe it looks like a lot of rules, not a lot of fun, you've got other plans for your life, this doesn't really align with it, too much to give up. If you're in that sort of in-between spot, I do want to be honest with you and say that I think the lie here is that there is sort of a neutral ground that you can occupy with the Lord. Um, being aware of the Bible and what it teaches, but not really sure if you're going to commit, you're not really for it or against it. I think that's actually a, a lie when we're talking about the true and the living God. James actually addresses this later on when he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. The one who has made a friend of the world will find himself an enemy of the living God. He'll find that the ways of the world are different from the ways of the Lord. He'll find that the morality of the world and its standards change whenever they need to. But the Lord is steadfast. There's no shadow of change in him. He'll find that the world has no kindness unless there's something to be given in return. But the Lord's kindness was to look on Christ's righteousness rather than on your sin. That person will find that he can't do enough good deeds to feel good about himself, to actually get forgiveness, while God himself has freely forgiven the one who repents and believes forever and ever. You'll find that this free grace is yours for the taking, and you are most welcome to it. So if that's you today, if you are in an in-between spot, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Put away your sin and take away the forgiveness that is offered freely in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If your religion is worthless, he will make it pure and undefiled. Come find me after the service. Talk to one of the elders, Andrew, John, or Tom, or maybe the person who greeted you. We would love to talk more about this. But if you've been reconciled to Christ, then let me offer a challenge to us and an encouragement. So we can see clearly from this passage that a true believer's life is marked by purity. Purity in speech, purity in faith, that is obedient faith, not letting our lives be marked by worldliness, but instead by godliness. So here's the challenge. Where might your life not align with these commands? If Christ has forgiven us of our sins, does our speech condemn others? Do we start unnecessary arguments or quibbles? Are we quick to anger instead of forgiving others as we have been forgiven? Do we jump to conclusions before hearing the other person's side? Is their speech really pure? If God has written his word on our hearts, where might we have scribbled in the margins? Do we consume media, TV shows that we ought not to spend a lot of time on? Excessive phone usage, smartphone usage that wastes time? Do we have influences in our lives that are more worldly than godly? Or are we putting away those sorts of things? The men's ministry recently went through J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men. And one of the points was, do not make an intimate friend out of someone who is not a friend of God. Do not make an intimate friend out of someone who is not a friend of God. Do we sometimes seek affirmation or validation from someone who is apart from Christ? Do we regularly ask and expect the Lord to change us through his word? Or do we read it and we check a box and we move on to the next task? But lest we be 
discouraged here. Right? I do think there's a healthy admonishment for the Christian who looks at this and, and sees that his life is, is not marked by these virtues, not marked by this kind of obedience. I think there's a very real danger in looking at James and, and getting discouraged by legalistic thoughts. It's happened before. But here's the encouragement, I think. If you're faithfully walking in this, if you're faithfully doing what you see in Scripture, if you're careful with your speech, and you're not hasty in your anger, then I think the message here is that you will be blessed in all you're doing, that the Lord will keep you, and He is keeping you until the end when you receive the crown of life. The Lord Himself has promised us that these are the marks of true faith. If you're in Christ and showing this fruit, then be assured that you are indeed on the right path. You're headed in the right direction. We really ought to encourage and affirm one another in this whenever we see this in each other's lives. We really ought to do this more often. Practicing this affirmation with each other when we see the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of obedience is such an encouragement. Whether you've just started out on your faith or you've been doing this for years and years and years, this is the kind of stuff that is supposed to encourage us and strengthen us, is that we look at what true faith is supposed to contain. We look at our own lives. We thank God for his grace and his mercy. and We look at the fruit that he's shown it. And if we look at it and we see a deficit, if you look at that bank account balance and it's too low and you think, I've got to be better at this, don't be too discouraged. Don't be too crushed with guilt. Take comfort that that evidence of faith is borne out by obedience. Get to obeying. Start obeying. Walk out in faith. Act out what you see in Scripture, and I think the Lord will bless you, right? You may not get the second lake house. I'm not talking about that kind of sec- that blessing. You, you, your homeschooling may not ever get any easier. Um, you may not ever make any more money than what you do right now. The Lord could bless you. A lot of times he does. But what we can be very sure of is that he'll keep you to the end. He will persevere. He will give you the crown of life. That is much better than the material blessing that we sometimes want right here and now. We're all growing in our faith and our sanctification, right? We're putting sin to death and we're becoming more like Christ. And the discouraged Christian who's crushed with guilt can take comfort in knowing that the evidences of your faith are borne out by obeying these commands. And if you've been at work at this for years, you can look back at the fruit and know for certain that it was time well spent and draw down energy for more years of obedience. Let's pray now. Let's go to the Lord's table together. Let's worship there. Let's remember Christ's death and his resurrection. And then let's anticipate when we feast together forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for revealing yourself to us through your word. We ask that you would help us internalize what we've heard today. We ask that you would help change our hearts so that we are not just mere hearers of the word, but we act on it. We do the word. We put it into faith and action. Lord, we need your help for this. You have written your word on our hearts. You've written your word and your law on our hearts. Help us to receive it humbly. Help us to walk forward in obedience. Lord, let us not be discouraged, but instead encouraged. When we look at your promises to us, we take hold of them and we act forth in obedience and in faith, knowing that you are true to your word. 
that you do not go back on your promises, that you will give us the crown of life as we persevere to the end. Lord, help us now to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.